So what an extraordinary reality that we are completely and utterly dependent on nature, and yet we fail to take account of it across the global economy throughout the financial community. But it's not as simple as sort of waking up one day and deciding that we will implement, you know, a new strategy. And that's that because we clearly have to think through how we measure the real physical risks, how we start thinking about reporting, how we then monitor progress, what exactly progress looks like and so on and so forth. So I would say as an industry, we are looking at these things, but there's a huge amount still to be done before we are in a more sustainable position from a biodiversity perspective. Carbon agenda has driven increased investor interests in natural uh, capital specific to the carbon sequestration characteristics of natural capital. For a long time, I think AXA has been very aware both as AXA Group as an insurance company and AXA IM as, as investors of the business risks to which we're exposed, which are associated with both sort of climate change and climate risks and more broadly natural capital degradation and, and loss. Hello and welcome to our new episode of Risk and Regulation Unraveled, our Grant Thornton's Financial Services podcast. I'm Irina Velkova, your regular host, and I bring to you conversations about the dynamic world of risk and regulation. We help our financial services clients understand new regulatory developments, upcoming changes, and how to stay ahead of the regulatory curve by inviting renowned experts to share their insights. It's taken us a long time to bring the topic of climate at the fore of the conversation in the financial services industry. Having just started to tackle this though, yet another risk, biodiversity loss risk, is looming and global leaders and financial institutions are starting to realize that nature capital is at least as important as it's any other capital, with potentially huge economic consequences and the rise of new risks if we don't take care of how we use natural resources and the overall impact on the ecosystem. Hopefully, we have learned from the climate conversation and it won't take the industry as long to bring biodiversity at the heart of everything we do, because it is. So to discuss where we are on the journey though, how much the industry understands biodiversity loss risks and the, the link to the economy, I have invited two exceptional guests who not only care on a personal level about biodiversity, but bring deep expertise and knowledge on the subject. It is my pleasure to first welcome Dr. Simon Zadek. Dr. Zadek is the Chair of Finance for Biodiversity, Director of Migrant Nation, Senior Advisor to the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosure and Co-Lead of the Task Force on Nature Markets. He was Head Secretariat, UN Secretary General's Task Force on Digital Financing of Sustainable Development Goals, Senior Advisor on Finance in the Office of the UN Secretary General and Co-Director of the UN's Environmental Finance Inquiry. What an impressive list, Simon. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much indeed. We also joined by Amanda O'Toole from AXA Investment Management. Amanda is the portfolio manager of the ACT Clean Economy Strategy and the ACT Biodiversity Strategy. In addition, she is the Clean Tech Thematic Specialist within AXA's internal global research team and the Impact Research POTS leader for the smart energy and agriculture themes within AXA's Impact Research. Great to have you to you, Amanda. Thank you for having me. 
There is a lot to discuss today and I'm definitely very keen to get into the nitty-gritty of the conversation but before we get into that biodiversity is for me at least a subject very close to my heart for, for a number of personal reasons but why do you two care about it actually? And I'll start with Amanda just to just to start on a female basis here. <laughs> um, I think really earth's biodiversity is is the foundation of of all life we rely on plant life for oxygen plants and animals for soil health pollinating insects for crop production you can go on and on you know it's our most effective carbon sink it helps us to mitigate the most extreme of weather conditions it's a source of medicine inspiration for many different technologies and so on and so forth so it's actually the most valuable resource we have which means it's absolutely critical clearly that we protect and try to rebuild where we've already caused damage but i also think there's a moral imperative you know this is this is life and and so from a personal perspective i think it's also important from that that angle to to remember that this is not something that we're entitled to just destroy and simon what is your perspective on that where do you come on that particular point i think amanda has rounded it out very well you know 100% of our global economy is 100% dependent on nature including us so all these numbers less than 100% actually don't mean anything at all so what an extraordinary reality that we are completely and utterly dependent on nature and yet we fail to take account of it across the global economy throughout the financial community except in exceptional circumstances uh, and although i completely agree with amanda that there are intrinsic values to nature and there are many and we could spend the entire podcast uh, quite fruitfully discussing that uh, i think the real conundrum is how we transverse to a point where um, a resource, natural capital, that we are utterly dependent on is correctly countered in the way in which we design and run our global economy. Yeah, indeed. And you mentioned the financial community there, and, and that's perhaps a good starting point for, for the actual meaty conversation, if you like. Why, why these actually matter? Uh, matters for financial services as an industry why we should start caring about it basically Simon maybe because you picked up on that first sure I mean you know we start with risk inevitably um, that uh, the economic assets that deliver us returns uh, in the main are not pieces of nature in the way we would normally recognize them trees and so on and so forth but are dependent on nature. Uh, and that dependency relationship, whatever language you use, means that the asset's profitability is a function of the quality of the natural asset on which it is dependent and draws from. Yeah, and so go figure. You know, we spend a lot of time trying to ensure that the people we employ are not becoming unhealthy or dysfunctional or demotivated. Um, uh, and we need to do the same with nature more broadly to ensure that the nature on which we depend constitutes a continuous flow of benefits to the economic assets from which we profit, um, rather than that dependency relationship falling into a state of risk. Now that's, if you like, 
the foundation. Yeah, we have to understand the dependency relationship between nature and the economic assets that we invest in, some of which are nature explicitly themselves, such as woodlands and so on. But, but it goes beyond that. You know, we need to design financial instruments that capture not only those risks, but the potential benefits from sustaining and investing in nature itself. And we can talk about that, for example, in relation to carbon markets, but in other contexts as well. Um, and we need to see that there are growing numbers of markets around the world where nature itself is being traded and valorated in different ways. So these are, again, sort of the upside opportunities. Uh, and I would probably just sort of egg the point um, by uh, pointing to the food sector, you know, the equivalent for nature that energy is to carbon, uh, in highlighting the extraordinary changes that are coming to the food sector. And of course, the current situation highlights the need for that even more. Uh, and many of those changes will be pushed through in ways that makes food system uh, stability and resilience and food supply price and security less dependent on nature that it's actively damaging. So all of those risk points relates to regulation and so on, but many of the upsides of the way in which nature can and should be invested in going forward. Indeed, and, and you make some really important links between the entire ecosystem and how this, of course, goes back to the whole financial services industry. I wonder, Amanda, from, from your um, position and, and where you sit within AXA, has the, the, the industry realised that really important link or is it taking a different perspective when it looks at biodiversity particularly? Uh, I think Simon's absolutely right in what he says um, and, and he articulate the issue very clearly. I would say that as an industry, we are slowly waking up to some of the risks um, and starting to think about how we address that reality. I would say that that is happening more rapidly than we saw when we started to be able to think about and measure and monitor carbon sort of risks and, and and climate transition risks. I would say that as an industry, we've learned an awful lot from that process and just how rapidly that those negative externalities crystallized as, as economic risks. I think I would say that both the management teams that I speak to as an investor, but also my peers around the industry understand the significance of the discussion that is now happening around biodiversity and is keen to address it. But there are many challenges with doing so, um, many of some of which I think we're going to discuss hopefully today. But it's not as simple as sort of waking up one day and deciding that we will implement, you know, a new strategy. And that's that because we clearly have to think through how we measure um, the real physical risks, how we start thinking about reporting, how we then monitor progress, what exactly progress looks like, and so on and so forth. So I would say as an industry, we are looking at these things, but there's a huge amount still to be done before we are in a more sustainable position from a biodiversity perspective. A lot of opportunity for those that are thinking about this. It has been in the spotlight for some time, the whole biodiversity loss conversation, if you like, but why now, suddenly, nature obviously has 
always been there. Uh, we seem to have been ignoring it for a long time, in fact, destroying it for many years. How do we come to the position that suddenly we're so interested in it and we start doing things? Um, oh, but you mentioned the, the link to climate and obviously some of the points um, and the, le the lessons learned from that. But isn't that a bit sudden? And is it right to be sudden and now? Yeah, why now? So, so I'll, you know, I'll offer two or three thoughts because um, uh, uh, it's a really interesting question. So firstly, um, I think there is a more visceral understanding of nature-related risks at a public level as well as at an investment level. And whether they are good examples or simply iconic and brash, you know, the uh, visual of burning forests uh, at scale, uh, the visuals of extraordinary floods, destructive, tragic in many instances, um, you know, bring to home uh, a greater sense of fear that, if you like, filters into um, the professional uh, uh, body of financial intermediaries. Um, so, so that would be one, you know, it's just sort of look around, read the paper, talk to your kids, or perhaps even better, listen to your kids. Um, so that's number one. Then, then I would say, as a kind of a second, the carbon agenda um, has driven increased investor interests in natural uh, capital um, specific to the carbon sequestration characteristics of natural capital. So voluntary carbon markets beginning to emerge more rapidly now for better, worse, whichever we happen to think. Estimates are anything between 30 and 40% of all carbon credits across all voluntary carbon markets globally will come from uh, carbon offset agreements linked to nature assets. That's a huge proportion uh, of what is a very large space where increasingly every day more and more parts of the investment community are piling into and actually more and more actors are entering the financial community in order to pile into that opportunity. That means you've got to understand natural capital much more, who owns it, you know, how to sustain it, you know, what its biophysical characteristics are, how to negotiate a deal, you know, and all the rest of it. Suddenly, there's a huge need to grow one's understanding of how natural capital can be analysed and invested in, at least with a view to dealing uh, with carbon. And, and then I would just add thirdly, and we may want to come back to this a little bit later, you know, I, I think perhaps if I'd said, or others had said two or three or four years ago, you know, the food system is unstable, um, and a significant part of that has to do with its relationship with nature and broadly capital, um, you know, there would be a relatively small number of geeks that would have taken note. So I think we will increasingly focus on food and the transformation of the food system, which remember, you know, is an $8 trillion a year part of the global economy. So 7 8% of the total global economy, uh, both through a risk lens and through an opportunity lens. So those would be at least some of the factors that has shoved nature into the light in the way it wasn't before. Yeah, no, thank you, Simon. And and Amanda, you mentioned obviously the financial services industry has now starting to realise the risks associated um, with with nature more broadly and the link to to economy in general. Uh, 
what's been the wake up for you in AXA? Where did you start from and, and why did you start in that journey? For a long time, I think AXA has been very aware, both as AXA Group as an insurance company and AXA IM as, as investors, of the business risks to which we're exposed, which are associated with both sort of um, climate change and climate risks and more broadly natural capital um, degradation and, and loss. You know, very clearly as an insurance company, one one takes physical exposure as an asset manager working with that insurance company. You know, clearly we, we have a role to play in mitigating that risk, which is which is which is partly sort of simply from an investment standpoint. But it's also about trying to address the real the problem, the real world problem um, and starting to mitigate the worst of those challenges, which you know, we feel well equipped to be able to do through a combination of identifying businesses which are doing better and 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 distinguishing between those and those which are doing worse from an operational perspective and allocating capital in that direction, trying to assess and to value the risk associated with poor practices um, to try to think about what the valuation discrepancy might be versus versus a, a business which is operationally performing better. But at the same time, recognising that we don't necessarily have yet all of the solutions that we need to move towards a more sustainable future. And so I think the other role that we can play as investors is starting to support those solutions, starting to indicate our recognition of the long-term value of technologies, of products, of services, which can help companies and human activity to shift to better practices, to cause less damage, to move away from the worst risk and, and to ultimately drive more positive outcomes in the longer term. And as a house, we feel we feel well equipped to support both sides, which I think are equally necessary for this sort of a transition. And that's really why we look in this area. It's it's where we see our role and how we feel that we can add value here. Yeah, and to be fair, it's very advanced compared to some of your peers in terms of where they are on their journey. And it's um, absolutely great that you're focusing on that. You both already mentioned on multiple occasions opportunities, and we approach this from a risk perspective and the potential detriment, if you like, on nature and the links to the economy. But it seems there is a lot of opportunity there indeed. So where do you, when do you see the main opportunities um, when you talk about biodiversity more broadly? Is, is this just an exotic, if you like, niche group of uh, group nature lovers, or is it actually scalable when you talk business more broadly? Um, Simon, maybe? Sure. So if you read the newspaper today and you imagine what kind of food system would you really like to have? then you would go, well, we should probably have something that's a bit more local. Yeah, so not such long global value chains. And we should probably have something that's not so susceptible to political interference. And we should probably have something that, you know, isn't so dependent on the weather and soil, given what's going to happen to climate. Yeah, and we should definitely have something that's organic. And we should definitely have something that's sort of affordable and you've got yourself vertical farming 
Yeah, and and so vertical farming will be a multi-trillion-dollar investment space. Now, obviously, there's already a huge amount of work going on in the alternative protein space, but actually, vertical farming uh, is a much broader ecosystem of production opportunities and nutrition opportunities. Um, and of course, the effect on nature, unlike say regenerative agriculture, and I'm sure Amanda, you'll talk about the regenerative agriculture fund quite rightly that acts are involved in. Um, but the effect is that you're removing food uh, production from nature far more, which of course ideologically may not be attractive to any everybody. But if you, you know, look at the weather patterns in India today and the expected weather patterns in Spain next week, you know, it is questionable how much regenerative agriculture is really going to survive the climate change to come. So, so I think, you know, uh, vertical farming, alternative protein, things of that kind are the equivalent of renewable energy or clean energy, let's say more broadly, in the food system and is by no means the only investment space, but is for us the existential investment space that connects to how we need to conserve and change the relationship between food production, nature, climate, uh, in particular, water. Yeah, no, it sounds horrifying, frankly, thinking of alternative options to food, but probably is the right way going forward and is going to take uh, some time for, for people's mindsets to, to change, I suppose, but it, it definitely but, is an opportunity. But, but remember that, 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 that whereas alternative protein requires that you eat something that you've never seen before, vertical farming delivers incredibly tasty versions, healthy versions, locally produced versions, affordable versions of things that you've been eating all your life. So, so you don't need a taste shift. Uh, unlike uh, in the alternative protein space. So they're both relevant and they both connect, particularly for pea-based production of alternative protein. Um, but it is a revolution in food production systems that will influence commodity markets, the financing of commodity markets, the way retail distribution systems work. It's not just the production systems that are going to be affected uh, as we change. I cannot simply not ask you, Amanda, have you looked at that as a potential opportunity and, and where do you particularly see the investment opportunity? Yeah, I mean, Simon's absolutely right to raise agriculture, food production and actually the, the whole of the food supply chain as a, as a primary consideration when seeking to address biodiversity loss. Um, and I wholeheartedly support vertical farming as part of the solution, you know, clearly if we're able to bring food production to a more sustainable set of processes and then bring it closer to end markets, not only do we improve the production, but we significantly reduce the waste involved in that transportation, which is actually still a significant part of the problem. We're still throwing away a third of the food that we produce globally. Um, and to the extent to which vertical farming close to end markets can mitigate some of that food waste there's a there's an incremental positive there so i absolutely agree it is it is part of the solution and actually being able to sort of close that cycle also does away with some of the unintended side effects of agriculture outside of the sort of direct land degradation and so on and so forth so it's very positive for many many reasons um 
you know, there are precision agriculture solutions which are a step forward from where we are. Um, and at the moment, I would say that any progress is 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 positive in that regard. And a lot of different ways to think about the agricultural and food supply chain. But actually, you know, it is all of our human and economic activity which is impacting biodiversity. And what that means really is that there are opportunities and scope for improvement across everything that we do, across all of our regions, all of our sort of sectoral activities, if you like. And so, you know, in terms of the opportunity, I would say it's very broad from an investment standpoint. It's actually that's actually very helpful because obviously it means if one is trying to invest and build a portfolio, one should be able to do that in a more diversified fashion. So from an investment standpoint, it's positive, albeit representative of the scale of the challenge. The way that I tend to break down the opportunities that I think are most investable now, by which I mean there are technologies that can help to solve the problem where we can make progress um, and where I think R&D will continue to be deployed is in a broad range of more sustainable materials. So anything from some of the alternatives to plastics, which are not all necessarily better, but certainly some of them are an improvement. Uh, you know, I mean, with regard to plastic, we're obviously now forecasting that by 2050, there will be more plast plastic than fish in the ocean, which is pretty horrific. And the total plastic mass already represents twice all of living animals, which is extraordinary. I think 80% of plastics ever produced are still in the environment. Obviously, there are, you know, significant implications for the health of our oceans and ultimately for, for humanity as well. We've all read the, the sort of horror stories of microplastics and the extent to which they're now prevalent within the human body. And I think that's a significant health crisis that we're storing up for the future. So clearly mitigating that through alternatives, through better recycling and so on and so forth is part of part of the solution. But there are an awful lot of materials that I would view as being necessary for a sustainable sort of humanity looking forward. So, for instance, those materials that contribute more broadly to the energy transition, which are not currently sourced and managed sustainably. So here we would look at anything from brownfield sites close to end markets that are producing lithium in a fashion which is significantly better than the virgin production coming out of some extremely biodiverse sensitive parts of the world and then being shipped halfway around the world um, and many other examples. And then we look at water ecosystems, again, looking at everything from limiting pollution through to reducing marine harvesting, particularly trying to mitigate some of those worst practices. And that is an industry where a huge amount of progress is still needed. And I would say that technology is very early scale um, and there's often a trade off. And then I think finally, the recycling and recirculation piece, it doesn't really matter which activity stream we look at, producing less, extracting less, using fewer virgin materials, recycling what we already have um, and recirculating. Is, is clearly a step forward. And so anything that contributes towards that kind of approach is something that we will look at. And from an investment standpoint, I think what's important is to be looking for the businesses which have technologies which are demonstrably impactful. So those which can deliver a positive change. We feel that that is the best approach here because 
partly clearly it allows us to derive that sort of environmental impact that we're looking for but also because actually those are the businesses that have a competitive advantage you know they have an opportunity to secure market share as these markets open up and grow and corporates start to adopt these best practices and they should retain pricing power if they have leading technologies which are supported by committed R&D over time these are businesses which which should retain that pricing power and ultimately to drive returns for shareholders in finance in a financial sense as well as delivering that non-financial objective so that's that's the way that we look at this from a sort of opportunity perspective i think they're the areas where there's most scope for improvement now a lot of the the examples you gave in terms of specific opportunities perhaps relate to the whole concept or model, if you like, around circular economy. Why do we not talk about it more? Why do we not put it more in the conversation, do you think? From my perspective, I would say it's quite it's it's quite a nebula. It's it, it's very difficult concept to pin down. Um, and not actually not everything that ostensibly circularizes is necessarily positive. Um, you know, there are obvious examples that the, that the media loves to dwell on where we talk about some of these kind of rental services for very high end apparel, for instance, mm -hmm. where actually that continuous last mile delivery is doing more harm than good. So I think simply to assume that circularizing something is necessarily better um, is oversimplifying the, the, the setup. And that's really why we try to talk about um, the kind of waste reduction and, and recycling. And really, it's why you have to look case by case at which of these solutions are actually impactful. Because if you take something like circularization, there are, of course, examples which are very positive. If you can take a waste product that would go to landfill and you can convert it into something that has economic value, which displaces virgin production, clearly that is that is very impactful from an environmental perspective. Um, but it's not necessarily the case that everything that circularizes is is doing good. Yeah, I, I can see Simon is eager to share his view. <laughs> no, no, actually, I was eagerly listening and learning uh, quite the reverse. No, I, I kind of agree uh, with all of that. Um, can I take the opportunity to jump slightly into the the kind of mean world of regulation and law and litigation, uh, yeah, which is not nearly as much fun really as the opportunity side um, but but of course the starting point is that the two are linked yeah that as we begin to drive um, if you like drive up the price of nature in financial decision making yeah it begins to change the balance of what isn't isn't profitable um, so for example finance for biodiversity is currently um, doing a piece of large-scale quantitative modelling, looking at the effect of integrating nature risk into financial markets on asset allocation across different parts of the food system. And of course, the positive side is going to be that it pushes um, allocation towards nature light, climate light uh, assets and makes them relatively more profitable uh, as a result. Uh, but of course, there are potentially other consequences. The impact of, on employment is probably uh, one of the most significant constraints to advancing change across the food system, uh, because you have you know, one in 10 adults in the world dependent on their livelihood, more or less, 
uh, uh, linked to the food system. And then, of course, the effect on the cost of nutrition also has to be taken into account. That uh, it's one thing that, you know, industrial toxic food becomes less profitable um, because nature and climate price is driven into it. Um, but at the same time, that can lead to an overall escalation uh, in the cost of nutrition, which, of course, will have secondary effects on public health and equity and so on. And so the ecosystem within which we need to think about how nature fits into financial decision making uh, obviously goes much broader than how to price assets and what constitutes profitable investment, not because investors need to intrinsically care about these wider things, although, as Amanda says, you know, I would hope that they do as individuals, but because, of course, all of those broader public interest issues will affect the way in which the policy and regulatory environment emerges. And if I was to illustrate that, um, uh, 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 still linked to um, uh, largely food, but not specific to food, one of the most interesting areas that FB is currently working on is the growing appreciation of the link between uh, environmental crimes and anti-money laundering, uh, a topic of considerable interest uh, to the investment community because it takes you away from credit risk analysis into liability analysis uh, and triggers uh, a bunch of lawyers inside a financial institution instead of a bunch of risk analysts and lawyers tend to have a stronger voice in many respects. And historically, we've seen a lot of work done uh, uh, in uh, the application of AML to elicit financial flows linked to wildlife trafficking. Um, but actually relatively little has really been enforced in that space. And more importantly, very little has been done outside of that space across many other aspects of environmental crime. And actually, when you look at the data, um, the extent to which significant environmental damage is a result of nature crimes is very high. So this is not a marginal piece of the story, but is a really significant piece of the story. And today, you know, without naming names, you can have a financial institution that is investing in a palm oil company that is growing palm oil and harvesting, posting it using illegally deforested land in Liberia. And that financial institution can have a direct line of sight on the fact that they are directly benefiting from low cost economic environmental services linked to illegal activity. But actually that financial institution has absolutely no risk. There is no liability risk. Yeah. And so the debate now is beginning to expand. And, and I think there is no doubt that over the really near future, so the next three to five years, we will see a significant expansion in the ways in which anti-money laundering rules are applied to nature crimes. And it will become a much more important issue for financial institutions around the world to take into account. Next week, for example, after traipsing up the magic mountain to Davos, you know, I'll be heading off to another part of Switzerland to something called the Wolfberg Forum, um, where there's effectively a meeting of the great and good in the financial crimes community, so Interpol and all kinds of different financial institutions and others. And a major chunk of what's being discussed is the growing importance of environmental crime within that community and how to take it forward. So there are many pieces of the story, I think, some perhaps less obvious than others, including AML, 
that will become significant in the way in which the financial community thinks about risk and opportunity as it relates to nature. Yeah, no, thank you, Simon. And, and on that note, Amanda, wh where do you see now, I suppose, nature playing into pricing? So obviously, Simon mentioned uh, the, the cost of nature, the cost of climate, um, perhaps the impact on assets, etc. Obviously, AMO linked to that. Where where do you price it, if you, if you do? I think, honestly, I think this is hugely challenging at present. There are some significant pieces of progress being made um, with regard to starting to build out a framework, a proposed framework that could potentially be adopted broadly to allow some sort of measurement and monitoring that is consistent across businesses in order to be able to make comparisons both between sort of businesses, but also um, over time periods. And that's extremely important to us. Um, but at present, there is no one single data point which the, the sort of economic community has agreed ought to be the appropriate metric around which to coalesce. Um, and it's quite challenging, you know, if we think about biodiversity specifically, this is a far more complex issue to try to measure than, say, carbon emissions in the sense that, you know, what are we measuring? Are we talking about the frequency, the abundance of, of, of biodiversity? Are we talking about sort of the number, the richness? Are we talking about diversity? Are we talking about the relative value of species and so on and so forth? what baseline do you use? Are you looking at now and the improvement that can be made against now? And therefore, are you arguably sort of penalising those businesses that, are, that own land which has been the least degraded to date? Or do you use as a baseline something which is closer to sort of untouched land and, and natural capital, if you like? Um, and then once you go beyond sort of thinking about what exactly it is that you want to measure, clearly there are practical challenges associated with this measurement. And it's something that certainly the corporates we speak with that are most mindful of this issue and most keen to start to measure and to monitor in order that they can improve in their practice are looking at. Because once, once they've established what exactly it is that they want to measure, they've got to work out how to do that and how to do so consistently and then how to communicate around that. So there is there is a lot of challenge in terms of pulling this together. I think for us, what we find is that we're sort of taking a two pronged approach to that. So we've partnered with somebody who is working towards best in class operational sort of footprint measurement here. And there is certainly progress there, and absolutely willingness from corporates to invest in order to start to measure on these things. But I think the other thing that we find we need to look at is case by case, business by business, what exactly is the technology? What can it do? What can it achieve? How do the management think about that? How do they invest behind it, keep innovating and keep trying to improve? What are the practical applications? How economic and realistic are they? And what are the outcomes and how can they be best managed on a sort of single business basis? Um, and then how can we monitor that use that sort of data to identify where there are risks, think about the extent to which those risks could potentially be mitigated, you know, engaging, pushing businesses forward in that regard, 
and thinking from a very practical bottom up perspective how how to address some of these issues but to measure across the sort of whole even global listed space the sort of the biodiversity risk both physical and transition if you like is still very challenging and it's certainly something that we are pushing towards but wouldn't claim a solution right now actually amanda everything you said i agree with and i would make the observation that many parts of the financial community either in good faith or in slightly less good faith um, are using the argument of complexity not to advance yeah and so i'd like to just not disagree with you but to add to your point that that actually there is no reason why people can't start now uh, one doesn't have to look across one's entire portfolio one can do hotspot identification quite quickly you know there are increasingly sophisticated flows of data being made available that will change very quickly literally over the coming months not just the coming years uh, and i wouldn't want your completely correct analysis of the challenges in dealing uh, with this stuff rigorously to in any way put off financial institutions from the equally important message that now's the time to start rather than waiting for some glorious finished product in the future. And for that reason, really picking up on your reference to a common framework, the Task Force on Nature Related Financial Disclosure that AXA is obviously really involved in and fantastically so and that I've uh, also been involved in since it started has really already put out an initial beta framework which doesn't provide you know the singing and dancing metrics and data flows right from the get-go but does set out I think what is an important foundational set of concepts and frameworks and ways of thinking about the links between nature and risk that now it is layering on and layering into increasingly granulated metrics and data ultimately coming down to sector and jurisdictional level. So I don't think Amanda and I are disagreeing about this, but I just wanted to kind of add that message that the time to start is now, that there are ways to start now, and that the good news is that there are many leaders like AXA and others that are experimenting in moving forward quite quickly that the rest of the financial community can learn from. Yeah, no, definitely. Thank you, Simon. And, and I was going to ask about the TNFD framework because it's obviously a key regulatory piece. And I was going to ask you, Amanda, perhaps how helpful do you think it's going to be exactly in the context of the challenges you just raised? I mean, honestly, it's critical. Um, you know, it's it, we've, as Simon says, you know, recently sort of seen the the the, the beta version released. It's it's not been long, but it's incredibly helpful as a framework for sort of common communication for us with our clients with our corporates um and internally within the business it's it's incredibly helpful you know it starts to inform the way that we think internally about sort of compiling metrics about aligning products about identifying risks about where we ought to be focusing engagement and so on and so forth for our clients i think it's very helpful because it's the starting point of them being able to compare and contrast sort of the, the services that are provided by by um, the people investing on their behalf. For corporates, I think it's very helpful because, again, it gives something to start to coalesce around. I think what's clear is that unlike the start of the energy transition, I would say that all of those participants, or at least those prepared to think about this, 
recognise the risk of doing nothing. And as, as Simon says, I think keen to make progress, recognising the pace at which it is likely that what are currently negative externalities will come to be priced as risks, as economic costs, as, as, as sort of challenges for revenue and so on and so forth. And uh, therefore, as investors and as clients, I think it's important to, to build on what we currently have. And, you know, we're seeing progress in a number of different ways. You know, COP15 has also been very positive. There are elements of the EU taxonomy that's very supportive of this progression as well. Um, but certainly, I think it's important to be making progress rapidly from where we are now. I, I perhaps want to put a slightly different twist, which is we talked a lot about the risks and the detrimental impact, if you like, that we all have on nature and all the human activity has on nature, um, all the challenges we have in terms of measuring biodiversity loss and then, of course, measuring and monitoring that. Are there reasons to be optimistic, though? I think so. Um, I, now more than ever, actually, as you rightly pointed out, we have been destroying natural capital for decades and now we're focused on this you know there is a huge amount of capital looking to swing in this direction there are some very intelligent minds and and important legislators starting to look at these issues corporates deploying capital to try and find solutions we're a long way from there but i would say we're in a better position now than we ever have been there are always good reasons to be optimistic because it's what gets one out of bed um uh, and clearly, we've learned from the climate space uh, in ways that allows us to accelerate things that are comparable uh, and to avoid things that haven't worked terribly well. Uh, and, and so I think, for example, the speed at which the central banking and financial regulatory community is now beginning to look at biodiversity issues is built on the back of the breakthroughs we had with them really from 2015 onwards in getting them involved. Uh, in the climate space, the willingness of the G20 this year um, to move from a fairly narrow view looking only at really carbon related risks to begin to look at biodiversity related risks, particularly encouraged by US Treasury, you know, is something that, you know, builds on years that allowed us to push the sustainable finance and green finance work into the finance track of the G20, simply for the G7 under the German presidency this year. So there are all kinds of super highways that we've helped to build that enable us to move more quickly. There are all sorts of repetitions of experience that we can build on, and there are all sorts of errors or misunderstandings from our climate history that we can avoid. So all of that is very encouraging, and it depends on leadership. Yeah, and, and I would kind of make the observation because it's blindingly obvious, but often forgot that the development of nature as a core form of capital that we manage and conserve and restore and invest in effectively will not happen automatically. It will happen through the fact of pressure and leadership and experimentation and willingness to take risks and to develop new approaches. Companies like AXA and also others, you know, not because they're perfect, but because they're willing to get out there in front are absolutely critical because this stuff will not happen simply automatically because it has to. Yeah, and it is indeed the leadership and it is indeed those large corporates and of course what the institutions can do, but what all of us as individuals can do. And 
for all of us, it is just there to be kind to nature. Thank you both indeed very much. It was an absolute pleasure having you today. And thank you very much to all our listeners as well. Um, you can sign up to the Financial Services Regulatory Newsletter to receive weekly updates and invites into your inbox. And to stay up to date with the upcoming episodes, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Amazon Music. We'll be back with our next episode next month to talk about other exciting topics of the risk and regulatory world. Thank you again and goodbye and don't forget, be kind to nature. <laughs>